0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. The pandemic has certainly changed the way we work. Most of us probably still working from home, and although most of us will likely return to working in some sort of office environment, one thing we know for sure is that it won't be the same. In this episode, we speak with a good friend of mine, someone I used to live with in the same building complex in Shanghai, in fact, Nabil Sabat, Group Director, North America and Greater China at M. Moser Associates, a company with 40 years of experience, specializing in the design and delivery of workplace environments all over the world we talk about the future of work in china how office design can impact work culture and of course the impact on all of it due to covid19 and more enjoy
1: when the visionary at the table says i want this to be unlike anything else ever on earth no one asks questions actually everyone gets in line to how, how are we gonna create that? How are we gonna ensure that this vision is is captured? And so everyone in the executive team and below in those organizations, then their duty, their job, is to bring that vision of the visionary to life. I remember when Xi Jinping actually came into power, he actually made a statement, no more of these like strange buildings, titi guai He said, no more of these strange buildings everywhere. Try to be a little bit more conservative because <laughs> it's getting out of control, it's just too much.
0: Nabil, thanks for coming on the show, my friend. Good to have you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Tell us a little bit about how did you end up working in the China office design space?
1: You know, I, was, I graduated from engineering and I was always fascinated with design. And uh, I started my career in Canada, did quite a bit of work between Canada and the US. But for whatever reason, you know, something deep inside said uh, I need to go out, spread my wings explore what other people were doing. And so, you know, my wife and I went, went in 2006, late 2006 started preparing to go to China. And, um, and it was, it was really just an adventure. We just wanted to see what it was like to learn and to experience other cultures. Uh, We felt like we were worldly, but we didn't realize how much we were actually up for a, a surprise when we got there. And so, that's how we started. I I was doing engineering work out there, looking at building spaces and, and largely industrial facilities. Um, But I, I knew that, you know, something about people, something about connecting with people and designing for people was my calling. And, and as a designer, I think a lot of, a lot of designers are looking for how to make impact, how to have leave a mark or, or really yeah. do something for others. And so it really, uh, I, I really was fascinated by the office space, you know, it was a, an environment where people spend so much of their conscious, uh, hopefully conscious time. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, Oh, well, if I was able to make impact during someone's conscious time, that would be, that'd be great. I'd be able to make big impact on people. And so I, I, I found a, a firm that was deeply focused on that and, um, just fell in love with it. And so I've been doing it since.
0: Tell us about some of the the coolest and most interesting projects that you've worked on before we dive into the how and why you do what you do.
1: My definition of coolest would be, uh, probably the, the most transformational. Um, this one project we worked on. It was called the Hua Bao, um, uh, China headquarter project. And, um, and I thought that was the coolest project because we were walking into a building that was, uh, you know, owned by this company, but really for a completely different purpose, it was a factory admin building. And, mm-hmm. and we had to take, and you know, we're talking a factory, a factory, uh, admin building that was, that was built maybe 30 years ago. And in China, that that's a long time. And so, Uh, we had to completely convert it into a state of the art, um, you know, beacon for this company and a center for knowledge workers. Hmm. And so that, that transformation was just really, really noticeable because you had a before and an after. So you can kind of see the contrast. Uh, that was one of my favorite projects. We've done a lot of research and development projects that were also really exciting. We got to be part of kind of the early days as companies were establishing R and D and we got to be part of that, you know, building spaces for their cultures and, um, and their teams. So, yeah, we had a lot of great, great experiences out there.
0: Who would have thought that you know this this would be something that this would literally become an industry become a sector because you'd imagine back in you know what the 70s and 80s you watch a show like the Bruce Willis show like the moonlighting or something and it was all just like the cubicles right the with the sound absorption kind of material on them and it was all spread out but what changed and you know like I remember like for me obviously the big behemoth google right it was all about the google office and you saw these pictures and then it ended up in movies and they had slides instead of stairs and guys were shooting down and like, <laughs> when did, like what what drove these changes to suddenly turn it into almost what looks like a fun house yeah well i think i think a huge
1: part of it is really the evolution of work as we you know you're talking about the 70s or even before so much of the work product was actually tactical work it was like process work i take something we use our brains like little computers we take something in We do a little process and we output something else. It was kind of like tactical, very practical, simple, simple tasks. And then work became more complex. It became more integrative, became more conceptual, became more adaptive. And that requires a different type of um, environment. So if you think of a production house versus a think tank, it starts to paint a picture for you. You know, the the motivation behind the work has to be different and you're asking now people like you mentioned Google, you're asking, you know, companies are asking their people to produce work that's never been done before. Not just to transact, not just the process, to create something, to innovate something that's never been done before. And that you need to connect. You need the whole person. You need to, you need to make sure that they're well you need to make sure that they're comfortable you need to make sure that they're able to say they have different levels or different different types of neurological needs you have to ensure that you're not combating that that you're you're empowering them in every neurodiverse need they have you have to have to feel included um, and only then when you are able to create these environments can you really harness the power of their innovation and so the thing that changed was people's work. And when people's work changes, then the environments that support that work also need to change. And so this is now the big drive is how do we continually, continually advance as our work becomes more and more complex, more integrative, more multidisciplinary.
0: When you're having those first conversations with clients, and, and, and as you know, that the goalposts are always moving, right? What Do you find your clients to be most resistant? Or where do you find that you actually need to educate your clients to try to get them? You understand them probably better than they may understand themselves. Plus, you also understand best practices in the space and currently what's available to be able to do. Where do you find you having to put in the most effort to try to maybe convert or to persuade your clients to go in a certain direction?
1: You know, that really ranges from sector to sector. So, if you look at the tech sector, I think they've been accustomed to a certain level of progressive design. Mm. Um, you know, ownership of space is relatively low in the tech sector. I'll say if you work for a tech mm. company, you probably are sharing workstations or sharing certain amenities. But say you go to professional services like a legal firm or a well established financial institution, you got things like corner offices. Windows side offices, different levels of offices, depending on the level of seniority you have. And I think some of those things, and we call them symbols, like set stat, status symbols, or some of like they've earned, earned symbols. Some of those things are difficult when we're trying to take them away. And so things we need to educate, things that we need to spend time kind of working on is, you know, are we really taking things away? Or are we trying to create, um, you know, something that is maybe even greater or have, give them more features, more more, more functionality than before. Um, so different, sec- different, different, um, you know, client types will obviously ha- have their eyes fixated on different things. And I think what we're seeing more and more of, you know, especially with COVID and the rise of COVID is that the office, the office space itself is kind of going through an existential crisis. And so what we're spending a lot of time, actually, interestingly enough, what we're spending a lot of time now is redefining the purpose of the office altogether. So a lot of the things that in 2019 would have been like major points of contention, do we share amenities? Do we share spaces? All of that is largely going away. It's very obvious that people don't need to always be in the office, but it definitely it's improved if they're in the office sometimes. Um, And so that, that, that concept of, you know, designing for a distributed team or partial occupancy, is really fascinating it's very kind of in the moment and something that is necessary now and it's it's really messing with all of our preconceived notions of what an office space should be
0: interesting yeah so you wouldn't necessarily own your own space twenty four seven. it can be modular in a way that it can be used and adopted by whomever is happening to come to the office come to work that day Uh, that's interesting what about some of this the conversation that I see on social and some people are and I've just seen this so you can correct me if I'm wrong but I've heard some people looking for more division versus what previously has seemed to be just blow it out it's open concept everybody bumping into everybody it's all about collisions and that's where the creativity happens and blah 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 now people are starting to i've just seen some people online going can we just can can we just get back to you know maybe just carving out my own little i, I i'd almost like to have my cubicle back can you talk to a little bit about whether that's well, am i right in what i'm seeing?
1: Yeah. I think there's definitely that conversation out there. I think people are talking about, I feel safer if I have more walls around me. Um, But I actually think that the the answer to that is back to the purpose of the office. So, you know, many of us have been working from home. You work from home. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm working from home at the moment. And so you wonder, okay, well, what is the, what function role does the office play? Well, actually the office is a gathering place for, you know, the team and, The real purpose of the office is for people to come together. We've proven that basic functions, basic tasks we could do from home or we could do remotely. We've proven that this has been like the biggest experiment since since March. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And there's a certain level of effectiveness of us being able to work in our homes. Now, not everyone has that. So some people, you know, live in multi-generational homes. They have roommates, they have bad connectivity. They can't focus at home. Some people need to get into the office for Ed's work. but that's not That's not even close to what it was before. So yes, there's an element of focus. You go to the office and you focus and you work. But largely the reason we will be going to the offices for human connection is for connecting to other team members, corralling around a common purpose getting inspired about our work and seeing our contributions as part of a team. Um, so when you think about that then you say, okay, well, I want to build higher cubicles. It's kind of contradictory. If the purpose of the office is human connection, then really the entire space maybe needs less cubicle or desk space for individuals and probably a higher proportion of meeting spaces, a higher proportion of collaboration spaces. And I think that proportion shift is actually one of the biggest, the biggest uh, influencers going forward.
0: You ran the office in Shanghai, or at least were one of the directors there for, I don't know, over a decade. So now that you run North America, the best question I can think to ask at a very high level, what? are the biggest differences between what clients of yours want in North America versus what they want in China, or even let's start with the way they work. How do, how is the way that they're working different in China versus North America? And let's not talk about COVID for the moment. Oh, that's a great question.
1: So we put COVID aside. One of the things I noticed really, I mean, to be out, to be from the Western world, to go to the East and then come back to the West, being able to kind of see both sides. It's interesting that, the workforce in, in say China really had a strong sense of obligation, obligation to the country, obligation to the company, obligation to the team, obligation to my leader. And so that that actually has its efficiencies. You know, things get done with a collective with a with a direction, things get done very quickly. In the West, I noticed that there is a stronger sense of rights. I'm not getting into whether this is right or wrong. This is what I've experienced. Um, yeah. The stronger, stronger sense of rights, of individuality. And so organizations spend a lot of time creating consensus here. Hmm. And, um, you know, to get the team the work to progress forward, there's a lot of consensus building, a lot of buy-in. And while that will create, oftentimes through that consultation, they'll will create probably a very rich and thorough and thoughtful product. It's also slower. It takes longer. So I, I saw that very clearly as, as you know, one, one, one culture very much based on obligation to one another and to, to kind of something like the company or the, the nation. And then the other side being very much about individual rights. Mm-hmm. So that, that actually manifests itself in the way we went after office work as well. In the East, oftentimes the visionary, the founder of the company would have a dream and then you design to the dream, mm-hmm. which is really fun <laughs> because you get to, uh, you know, push the limits like you've never done before. In the West, it's about how do I create something, but I don't rock the boat too hard. So there's almost a level of conservatism to the design. You have to really mm-hmm. balance it with the people and where they're at in their, you know, the employees and where they're at in their uh, comfort level.
0: Do you think that in the West, they cater more to I don't know the soft stuff of their employees that they they try to make their employees happier or more comfortable at least Uh, have more intent to do so than they do in the east or do you think uh, maybe the reverse is true in that in the east uh, or in you know in china specifically that they are really trying to cater uh, to keeping their employees happy and do you know going the extra mile and creating the environment and having you know snack bars and things available for them or is that just a western thing
1: i think that's all changing actually in the east as well i mean there was a period of time where um, kind of that top-down approach. Look, you got a job, be grateful. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it went a certain distance. But now, you know, in, even in China, the number of knowledge workers compared to the of high-quality knowledge workers compared to the number of knowledge positions, I mean, there's mm-hmm. still a huge disparity. So companies are eager and keen and desperate for the best talent, just like they are in the West. And so whenever you have that, that situation, I think there's a tendency to try to provide more perks, things that will make it more enticing for the individuals to join or to stay. You also look for ways to promote culture because money usually doesn't keep people. If yeah. you know, most people that are, of, of, that are decent at their jobs could probably find another job that will pay them more in a minute. Like it's not very hard if you're good at your job. So what, what keeps people then? You know, if it's not money and you know title is not it, you can probably get even better title. So, if it's not money and title, well, then what is it? And it usually comes back to you know culture, team, and the connections that they would have with you know at that level. So, you know, anything that companies can do to promote that, snack bars, coffee points, watering holes, I don't know, ping pong, whatever it is that can kind of promote that kind of culture, I think they're desperate for. But um, but overall, I would say that, you know, both the East and the West now are in, you know, real, real competition for top talent. And so they have to do whatever it takes.
0: What about uh, the M. Moser secret sauce? Am I allowed to ask what makes you guys so good at what you do?
1: We've really been focused on a type of design, like a, ty- a a section of the design world. We are 100% focused on places and environments that people go to work. So that's like research centers, office spaces, innovation centers, and so on. I think when you do, when you keep your focus, it, it allows you to collect a lot of data and a lot of expertise and understanding the hard stuff and the soft stuff. And so I think that focus has been really important and actually part of our secret sauce. In the realm of the work environment, we have actually created a really multidisciplinary team. Everything from uh, organizational behavior and strategic people who would try to understand a team and a company through the design, engineering, and architecture, all the way into our digital team that will provide workplace apps that would create an experience at work for employees, both in the office and out of the office. And then we've created a delivery arm that carries out the construction and the realization of all that work. So yes, we haven't been very broad in the in the types of spaces we've built. We've really focused on places where people work, but in that realm, we've gone super wide. We've tried to take care of everything for our clients. And I think that is Really attractive. I think nowadays more more than before. Even companies are realizing that you know the office space isn't just about one thing. It's not just about furniture or lighting or air conditioning or well being or whatever. It's this multi pronged thing, and someone needs to be owning the entire problem. So we like to position ourselves in that, in that in that way. We want to own the entire problem. We want to be at risk for the whole thing.
0: Let's talk. COVID let's let's get into that a little bit because there are probably points in history that you can point to that have had tremendous impact on the way people work which waterfalls into the where people work and how people work and the space that they need to facilitate that properly and make it efficient and all the rest I think COVID is seeming like it's probably going to be one of those points in history that we're always going to look back on that really truly impacted the way people work. And that's got to, you know, impact the way offices are designed. China's been back. They went through COVID. We're not back on this side of the ocean, so we're kind of yet to see where this is going to land on our side. But over there, where has it landed? What are you seeing? What has the impact of COVID had there on the way they're working that has impacted the the business that you guys do?
1: I think it's amazing how they rebounded. I was there at the end of January, right right before Chinese New Year. I was there in China working with some of our team members. And then I I flew back and, you know, then the whole world kind of changed on my flight back in Singapore. The China market, something about the timing, in my opinion, has really separated the China experience from the rest of the world. They went on Chinese New Year and they didn't come back for a couple extra weeks. So it was a really rough and intense lockdown. But really, when they came back from Chinese Year, a lot of things quickly went back to normal. That existential shift, in my opinion, isn't as strong in China. There are still huge offices full of people, conference rooms full of people, people coming to the office. Whereas in the West, we've had a lot, a lot longer of an experience with COVID, at least with the lockdown part of COVID. And so I can see that uh, the work from home model is going to be a much greater part of the facility strategy in the West than what I feel is happening in, in China. I think there's two parts to that. One is that what I just mentioned. The second part of that is I actually think depending on where you live in the world and the culture, the home setting is more conducive or less conducive to to, to remote work. So if you're in a multi-generational home, it's small. You're in the middle of Shanghai. you got a two-bedroom apartment. Your mom that's helping with the kids, your dad that's helping with the kids, It's grandma, grandpa, You know everyone's in the same space. And you're trying to take video calls. That's really difficult. That's really hard to do. And it's annoying. It's frustrating. So a lot of people just want to get out of there. So the office is definitely a refuge in, in some environments. And so I think the, the combination of the two is going to make... I think the China experience very different than maybe the rest of the world.
0: Do you think the impact of eating out as well, because so many young people don't cook in China, you know, I mean, I think when you're already going out for three meals a day, you might as well just do it from an office rather than going in and out of your house. Well, you
1: remember, I mean, you lived there too, right? So the yeah. house was what the house is like, where you slept, right? That's, that's the only, the kitchen was optional. There's... <laughs> Not only is there access to this food that's great all over the place, it's accessible 24 seven. So yes. I need a snack. I go downstairs, I grab a snack fresh. Um, yeah. so it's, it's definitely, uh, you know, I think all those, all the whole, it seems like the whole society and culture is really built around, you know, everyone taking a piece of like the daily life and everyone's got their kind of position and the guy that sells fruit. You know, you can walk over and grab the fruit. The guy that sells, you know, nice little steam buns. You get the steam buns. And there's a lot of interaction with kind of the, the street level community, I find.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: So the, the home has a different role. I just remember moving back here. We would go grocery shopping and I would come back. I remember the first couple of times we came back it was like 12 bags of groceries. And I was like, when was the last time I did this in Shanghai? Like Never. Because it's just, it's constant. You just take what you need for the day and then the next day is a new day. It's true. You've got restaurants, you have food, you have all kinds of accessible things at your disposal, which is pretty amazing.
0: You're somebody who is obviously your heads in the, in the space of, uh, you know the the architectural space. Just wanted to ask a broad question about for those who have never been to China, commercial architecture in general. Talk to us about some of the the the, the way that they build buildings and and the way that they've just accelerated their unique uh, design and kind of almost leaned into their creativity now. Uh, how do they design create you know really creative commercial spaces uh, in China now?
1: Well, I think in terms of speed china has really built the muscle to deliver probably goes back to like manufacturing and it being really the manufacturing house of the world for so long and it it developed the ability to to produce something quickly once the once the blueprint was there and so um i think that was a huge part of you know the speed uh component quality wise as well because if you think about it, it's it's kind of like manufacturing. They were able to refine and refine and refine the processes to ultimately get high quality buildings. A lot of people ask me, "Oh, how's the quality in China?" It's like actually, some of the buildings are phenomenal. Some of the buildings you would struggle to find that quality here. And sometimes I go to sites, you know, construction sites here in the West. I'm like, oh my god, this is behind what I experienced there. Um, so I think on that side of things, they they really have a great ability that's been built over decades in the creative creativity side. I actually see it connected to kind of visionary thinking. And so China is still a place where a lot of visionaries are still running their companies and whether it's a development developer or it's a financier, or if it's even an end user client, like a company or a corporation, a lot of the visionary people are still at the table And when the visionary at the table says, I want this to be unlike anything else ever on earth, no one asks questions. Actually, everyone gets in line to how, how are we going to create that? How are we going to ensure that this vision is, is captured? And so everyone in the executive team and below in those organizations, then their duty, their job is to bring that vision of the visionary to life. And so there's a lot of projects you'll see there that are really wild and really out of you know, out of this world, shapes and curves and, you know, Oh, um, I know. Scale. And I, I remember when uh, Xi Jinping actually came into power, he actually made a statement. He was, I know, I no more of these like strange buildings. Uh, he said, no more of these strange buildings everywhere. Try to be a little bit more conservative. <laughs> it's getting out of control. It's just too much. But, he, you know, in some ways it, it was, it was just like people's dreams to the, were being realized all kinds of crazy, crazy things were being built. But I actually was fascinated always when something was built and was actually, it fulfilled that dream. So a lot of, there was a lot of dreams that flopped, right? I'm going to create the center of whatever. And then it it opened and it was quiet. But there, there are a few projects that I found, you know, stood the test of time. I mean, it was a short time, maybe a couple of, a decade or so but stood the test of time in, in my opinion. One of the projects that I really loved was the redevelopment and you know this space is the redevelopment of a core part of Shanghai called Shinkendi and it's, it, it's really um, an incredible redevelopment project that used the power of design and the power of the power of community and really brought it all together in respected old Shanghai, but really brought modern design elements into it.
0: Super modern. Yeah.
1: Right. And what you see is you, you have a space that is, is burgeoning. It's constantly alive. It's like the heart of, uh, uh, of Shanghai. It's, it's so amazing. So I've always been fascinated by that because I felt like that there's a successful project, you know, the person's vision. Um, and that was a development by Shui on really great developer out there. And so they had a vision of what they could do to create and reinvigorate a, a, a space. And they really brought that to life. And it, was, it actually happened. Similarly, there's a, a phenomenal project. It's called Sandy Twin in Beijing. Super iconic.
0: Yeah, those are two iconic meccas just for shopping and restaurants. And,
1: and it's the kind of iconic that probably if you think back and you remember, you all, what do you remember when you think back? Like, do you, do you actually remember the details?
0: A, a few. I mean, the CCTV building, yeah. But you
1: remember the people, right?
0: Throngs of people. Yeah, the Apple Store in San Yeah,
1: the Apple Store and all, all the kind of restaurants. And there's an indoor space, outdoor space, beautiful design. And it's, it's really this burgeoning center yeah. of commercial activity, both office work and, and lifestyle. And so I think those are two two projects that that have stood the test of time. There's a couple that have come out of the ground, but we have to wait and see.
0: Thanks very much, Nabil. I appreciate your time, old friend. I hope we get to see you soon. I hope you are staying safe. Have a great 2021.
1: Thanks, brother. Nice talking to you.
0: Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at wpic.co and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zaijie.